2: This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. Before we get into today's episode, I have to talk about major development that's happened this week. On Wednesday, the New York Times sued OpenAI and Microsoft, alleging that millions of their articles were used without permission to train their large language model, sparking a huge debate over copyright and AI's legal boundaries. This is a landmark case that could have far-reaching implications for AI development, and in my opinion, This New York Times lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft means that for us in the news industry, we could finally have the answers we've been waiting for regarding whether large language models infringe upon the copyright of publishers. In light of this development, it's important to note that today's episode was recorded prior to this news breaking. While our discussion in this episode won't cover the latest development, it remains incredibly relevant because we are exploring the legal implications of generative AI in the newsroom and the challenges it poses to the traditional copyright laws. Joining me are two esteemed legal experts, Nina Brown and Jared Schroeder. Nina is an award-winning assistant professor at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. After having graduated from Cornell Law School, she practiced law for several years before joining the Newhouse faculty, and her research now focuses on the legal issues with deepfakes and emerging issues related to works created by artificial intelligence. And Jared is an associate professor of media law at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. He's the author of three books, including his upcoming book, The Structure of Ideas, mapping a new theory of free expression in the AI era, published by Stanford University Press. In this episode, we explore the legal implications of using generative AI in newsrooms. We look at the historical context and legal precedents to help speculate how the use of generative AI might be regulated, and also discuss the issue of copyright infringement. Jared, welcome to Newsroom Robots. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. I've been looking forward to today's episode because I feel like I have a million questions about all the legal copyright issues, specifically about generative AI and large language models. We've been talking a lot about all of these technologies on the show so far, but one area I'm always concerned about and curious about has been the legal implications of using generative AI in your work. And this technology is evolving so quickly. There are so many intellectual property issues, legal implications about this tech. And I want to dive into all of this today. But before I really go into more specific topics, I want to hear about what does this technology look like from a legal standpoint, and if we can understand that more. Nina, I want to start off with you and pick your brain a little bit more on how are these large language models legally defined and what are they considered under the current laws?
3: This is a great question. And I don't I don't have an answer for you. Right. So like many questions that lawyers are asked, we say it depends. And I think this one depends. I think we're still very much in the infancy of understanding how they work and how they're how they're operated. And I think if you got a a bunch of different legal experts in this area, they would probably disagree. I see these as tools. I see them as tools akin to any other technological tool that we have, and as such, we don't typically regulate tools. We regulate the output of those tools and the, and the users of those tools. So that's sort of the framework that that I think makes the most sense when when we look at AI or this particular type of AI.
4: Yeah, that's exactly how I would have exactly how I would have said it. Because so far, first of all, we do need to admit we don't have Supreme Court decisions. We don't have any like we don't have all the things we have in a lot of other areas yet. So everything we say is based on trying to understand what we know about the past for a tool that's very fundamentally different than anything else we've probably encountered before. But the easiest, clearest version is to treat it like a tool. Legally, it's like a tool. And like like Nina said, the person who is using the tool is usually liable for how the tool is used, right? If it's used in a legally problematic way, the tool is. You know, if you use a hammer to do something illegal, that's probably not the best example, but like no one's going to be like, I'm going to sue this hammer. It's going to be the person who used the tool that is liable. And so it'd be the same for newsrooms. If they use this tool in a problematic way, it would come back to the newsroom.
2: And I want to get into that more, Jared, when you're talking about what the historical precedence has been. How is in comparison to what has existed historically under the current regulatory laws that are out there?
4: Well, we don't have a lot, like we were saying with AI laws, so we do have to turn our our way back to previous questions, right? So if there is a defamation case related to artificial intelligence, we're going to look back at, well, how did newspapers, how did broadcast, how did all these previously existing technologies, how were they dealt with the defamation? Same with privacy or copyright, they're going to be turning their attention to older types of media. And that's not the best fit, but it's the best fit we've got, and we have a precedent-based system. So they're not going to be like, let's look at this fresh. They're going to say, how have we dealt with this in the past? And so previous, previous decisions about other technologies will influence this. Like whenever the Supreme Court had its first case about internet regulation, the government said, well, you should regulate it like broadcast, you know, and they, they didn't do it that way. But like they went through all these different types of previous cases to try to decide what to do.
2: Just as the technology is nascent and evolving, it seems like the legal landscape is still evolving in terms of regulating how these technologies should be operating and how should they be considered. But one of the big questions and concerns has been about the intellectual property implications. Two sides to it, I'd say. First of all, that these have been trained on it and then the people who are using it and producing information that has been trained on all of people's hard work. So I want to start off with the first part. What is your perspective, Nina, if we could start off with you in terms of this tool has been trained on millions and millions of data points and texts. All newsrooms data is part of this large language model systems. So in that perspective, how is it in terms of like the copyright issue, how would it be perceived?
3: I also want to add, I think we have, there's a third issue. So you're talking about the two copyright issues. I think there's a third too. And when we think about ownership of content that has been created using some of these tools. So maybe we can talk about that at some later point, because I think that that's relevant. But when we think about the way that LLMs train... A key point in understanding is that they, as you said, get millions of data points, right? And so there are really two schools of thought on whether the training is a copyright infringement or is a fair use. And of course, I should just note that fair use is a case by case analysis, and we don't, it is not accurate to make broad statements that certain uses are fair uses and certain certain uses aren't. It really is a case-by-case analysis.
2: Can you also just define what you mean by fair use? I know what it means in a legal standpoint, but I think just to clarify that for people who might not be so familiar.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the purpose of copyright law is so that we can encourage people to create new works. So when we want to encourage people to create new works, we're going to give them a monopoly on the works that they create, and they're going to have a certain bundle of rights that they get, that they get to control you know how their work is copied and distributed and and so forth but we don't allow copyright owners to control how other people use them when they use them in ways that we've deemed to constitute fair use so there are other uses of copyrighted works that we think also are really valuable to society because they contribute to research scholarship understanding of of things, or they, they help people learn through education, or they providing news and valuable information, or they so transform an existing work that it becomes something entirely new. And so in our legal framework, we've said there are certain uses of copyrighted works that are okay. You don't need to get permission from the copyright owner. And those are fair uses, right? So there's a legal framework. It's a four-part test for evaluating whether a particular use is a fair use. And the way that it works in u s law is that you need to get the, the only way to know whether something is a fair use is to get a federal judge's determination on the issue but we can speculate I think about some of this and I think there are two very different ways to conceive of whether or not what these if we're talking just about the large language models and not some of the image generative models what they're doing is a fair use or what they're doing is infringement and as you said there there are a couple of different things to think about here when they are gathering the data. They are looking at millions of data points. So they're reading news articles. These models are reading books. And by reading, they're really not reading. They're learning, it's predictive language. So they're learning the the sequences of letters and words next to each other. So you conceive of this process, yes, there's actually an argument right now as to whether they're actually copying or not the text as they learn it. But the question really is, is it a fair use to read all of this data, this information, to learn that predictive information, that predictive quality that these letters and these words tend to sequence with with one another, or is that not a fair use? And so there are two very different schools of thought.
4: So Sarah Silverman sued Meta for using her copyrighted works without permission to train its AI, and the judge dismissed the case. So The judge didn't get into fair use, he just said, this is not even a thing, we're done here. That's a recent example of someone, a high profile someone saying, you know, you're using my content without permission to train the AI. And so far, what I think I did see from that very the news reports about it was the judge just didn't see the connection between the copyrighted content being put into the system. It's like he was looking for an output. He was looking for a copyright violation on the front end. And because he didn't see it. So he was basically saying Sarah Silverman's content, yeah, sure, it's being fed in, but it's not coming out the other end as her copyrighted material by the AI tool. And therefore I just don't see it. And so I'm dismissing this case.
3: So I think that goes back to the two initial issues that Nikita raised, right? One concern is that the learning of the, before anybody is putting in a prompt to say, write me a poem, chat GPT or whatever bot, the large language model has to be trained. And so it has to learn how to write that poem. And so it's going to learn how to write that poem by consuming thousands or millions of poems and being able to predict it. So the first question is whether that data collection is an act of copyright infringement, as that LLM is pointed at it's web text, right? Which is consists of just a tremendous amount of materials. And then the second question is when the user goes in and says, write me a poem, or probably in the case of Sarah Silverman, write me a joke or something like that, right? And it generates something based on everything it's learned. Is it possible that the output will constitute a second and separate copyright infringement? And those inquiries are really very different, right? Because the argument that the owners and... I think at least six or seven cases right now that have been filed based on that initial data collection, right? You don't have my permission to scan my work, to scan my copyrighted work, to learn how to predict this language, or in some of the, the lawsuits based on images, to learn what it is these works of art look like. Is that a fair use? And I think I think there's to me, there's a really strong argument to be made for fair use. Again, I recognize that it's case by case, but like in the Getty v. Stability, that's that's one of the lawsuits. I think, again, going back to the purpose of copyright law, it's to encourage new works that benefit the public interest and having a machine learn what it means to be a poem, what it means to be a joke, what it means to be a painting, what it means to be a painting of a dog or of dragons soaring over a castle. That learning seems to, if we're looking at like the first component of fair use, to me, it it seems to be something that would tilt the scale pretty heavily towards a transformative use, which tends to be indicative that there'll be a finding of a fair use.
2: So to summarize that, basically, you say that the first concern uh, that people have in terms of the training data is a copyright infringement in itself, that could be considered to be a fair use of using that data in a way Because, again, it's having a transformative potential. And also other than that, one thing I was trying to, I've been thinking about how can we look at similar maybe technologies of where people are using your content in a way. And one other thing I was thinking about was when we're using it, like search engines also index publishers content. There's a lot of discussions right now and um, regularly implications right now happening with like Google and Meta and all of these discussions on how they should be paying for publishers' content. But is it similar to like, look at these two buckets in a way of like AI models are not directly reproducing that content, whereas is the same way how search engines are just maybe like indexing
3: that content. Are those like two similar ways to think about this issue? I think that is the argument, Nikita. I think that's exactly the argument, right? That this is very similar to indexing. It's it's a collection of information that then allows another action to happen. That two actions are different, right? When when Google is indexing them, the result, the secondary action that Google's using to, you know, suggest links is very different than Chat GPT, for example, being able to respond to a prompt, a user prompt. But that initial data collection, I think, is. I would argue is very similar to that. But there are people who would take opposing views, especially those who have filed suit, right? They argue that it's that it's not fair. Right? That's that's very different than that.
2: And just to get into that a bit, what are the arguments that they are making that it's not fair?
3: I think the argument that it's different is that these are works that are being copied whole cloth. So that the the language models or the whatever the generative AI models can learn, and that that is very different than indexing to essentially direct somebody to a particular place. There's more of a taking, in other words, with what these generative models are doing.
2: That helps clarify what I've been thinking about because these, the way I've been thinking about large language models are they are all about prediction. And as a data scientist, when you build all of these models, you are taking data from any any models and you're talking about translation, you're talking about voice recognition, you don't know, again, what those models have been built on. And they've probably been built on like open source data sets that are out there. And similarly, it seems like large language models have been doing the same and they're talking about predictions. So it comes down to exactly what have they been trained to do? They haven't been trained to copy. They've been trained to predict the next word, right? So that kind of gets like the next issue that we we're talking about with copyright infringement is if you're using generative AI in our works, especially as journalists. That's something in the media industry needs to be very careful about. What are the legal implications of that? So we're talking about the output is now a separate issue. So Jared, I wanna get to you about this. When newsrooms are using generative AI, from legal perspective, what does that look like? What are the legal implications of possibly using a generative AI content within their workflows?
4: So not just for copyright, but all the legal implications?
2: Let's just go specifically about copyright first.
4: I think the first one, and, and Nina referred to this earlier, as the third thing that about copyright to think about is that they generally, so far, wouldn't own anything that AI created, right? So if a newsroom has a big special report they're doing and they have some AI tool make a illustration as part of that, that would not be... While the story, the report itself, would be copyright protected, the illustration, because it's an AI tool... So far the courts would say that is not protectable, protected by AI, copyright. So that's one thing to keep in mind is if you're using AI, AI outputs so far cannot receive copyright protection. Another thing that newsrooms should be thinking about, it relates to is like the inherent bias in the AI. I guess that's not necessarily a copyright problem, but I was playing with Dolly three yesterday and um, I asked to produce classroom situations and it was producing classrooms of entirely white people. All the professors were men. I was talking to my class about it, and they're like, "Oh, that's really neat," but I don't feel like I'm represented at all in this. And so, that's another thing to think about is that the AI is not the AI is not using the reasoning that we would expect journalists to use. And so, they should be given a careful look. And then, the AI could potentially produce copyrighted work inside what it produces that could potentially create a copyright problem for the news organization. I think they're trained not to, but they make mistakes. The training is not perfect, right? So. Mm-hmm. Over Thanksgiving break, my uh, son was playing with the image creator and they have no idea. My sons do not tune into what I do. They don't believe I could know anything. And their coaches in high school are so much more knowledgeable than I am. And my son asked the image generator to create an image of a Chiefs, a Kansas City Chiefs football player holding a turkey because I was there for Thanksgiving. And I was like, well, what if you just put a specific player? He said, it won't give me their picture then. It's trained not to. But basically, when he asked it to create a Kansas City football player who is holding a turkey, it created Travis Kelsey, which was interesting, too, that even though it, he didn't tell it a specific name. And I've been able to replicate that where I've set, t- sold it to create a wide receiver, hold, catching a football in a University of Missouri uniform, wearing number three, and it created the exact player. I'm branching from copyright, but those are some things to think about, too.
2: I think that makes sense again because it's predicting maybe the next pixel and if within that image and that's what in its training data and so you say Kansas City Chiefs and that's exactly the player that it would again it's not perfect and that's that's what it's being Reproduce. I want to actually touch back into the point you were talking about. Newsrooms wouldn't have ownership over the output. So that's one of the big copyright challenges there. Digging deeper into that, if you're thinking of generative AI as a tool, and I knew I use chat GPT a lot, if you talk about just large language models for one, you, I use chat GPT a lot, but the content you get is not always perfect and you have to edit it down a lot. And now if you are editing like 50% of it and 50% of it is chat GPT, what does that look like then
3: the best advice that i can give you and i actually want to add one other thing to what jared would tell newsrooms and this relates i think to your question the biggest if we're talking about large language models don't rely on anything that they've generated as fact you still need to do your own journalism right this isn't there's not a shortcut and it's not a substitute because they do hallucinate they do provide false information so that's one thing that i, I would definitely add but But related to that, they are a tool. They are not the solution. So whether you're a journalist or a student or just a person who is using this this tool, you should integrate it with your own work. So if you're using ChatGPT to create text, edit it and add your own. And if it gets to the point where it's 50-50, I'm not exactly sure. We've had a, a decision from a court that said, certainly if it's solely created by An algorithm, it's not going to get copyright protection, but once there has been significant human contributions, it can qualify. So what constitutes that significant contribution? I'm not sure what that threshold is, but certainly the more you do, the better the argument is that you should have rights to it.
4: I mean, the danger that newsrooms pick up when they start using AI is that, sure, humans make mistakes, right, all the time. And that's theoretically most news organizations have built processes and practices to try to stop those errors from reaching audiences. The AI also make mistakes, but they're a different type of mistake because they're just fundamentally programmed differently. So the AI is making mistakes that are out of left field. They're like the most, like the, the pictures I was generating for my class yesterday, occasionally people just didn't have hands. They had, you know, they'll have a cup for a hand or like it'll just randomly insert things into the story. Like I sent, I did a newsroom, Robots image creation yesterday for you, Nikita, and and it made up a slogan. I didn't give it that slogan. I can't remember. It was like the future is here or something. And like it made that up. So it takes some liberties. And so it's a different kind of error that newsrooms should be looking for, I feel like, because a human error is we're looking for, oh, a misspelled word, uh, the wrong address, the wrong name, that kind of mistake. And the AI is making left field errors because it doesn't have any journalism training. So it's not approaching it from a journalistic perspective. It's just making things.
2: I always say like these large language models, they are language generators and not knowledge generators. And so relying on anything else other than that capacity of what it's trained to do is a wrong use of that tool.
0: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined.
2: Also, another thing coming back to the copyright challenge we were talking about, that's for text generation. Another thing was like for the Newsroom Robots podcast, our logo has actually been, we used MidJourney to create the robot hand that you see and the human hand. Both of those were things that our graphic designer had conceptualized and he couldn't find anything that was like a stock photo or anything existing image. So he prompted MidJourney for all of that. Everything else has been his creation. Again, Using mid-journey in that sense, what kind of are the legal implications of what we're doing for image generation now specifically? Is there a huge difference
3: compared between text generation and image generation? I would say it's going to be exactly the same query, right? How much was his contribution as opposed to what the AI generated? I'm just going to use Photoshop as an analogy, right? You can take a photo that you... Or you can sketch something out on paper that there's no question that you would have a copyright in. And now you import that into Photoshop and you start making changes and additions. You're using a tool to do that, but you're still fully in control of it, right? So there's, again, no question that when you save that, you're going to have a copyright to that. The difference with using something like an AI generative tool is that you're not directing it. You're giving it a prompt. So there's some direction, but you're letting it make a lot of decisions about how to execute this. And so once you get the output that it creates, the more work you do to make it your own, I think the better the argument that you have that if it otherwise qualifies for copyright protection, right, that that you could be considered the author i think the issue that the copyright office has which we could talk in a whole separate podcast about whether or not this is the right outcome right that it has said that only humans can be considered authors but the whole point is that it wants humans to be to be creating these works because humans can be motivated by that promise of copyright so you need to put in enough work, would be my guess, for a judge to make the determination or the Copyright Office, I guess, if, if they're reviewing the application in the first instance, that your work has met that threshold, that minimum threshold.
2: And it seems like there isn't a defined like, precedence of what is considered enough work done by a human.
3: Not yet. Give it a few years. I think we'll get there.
2: (laughs) Okay. Another big issue is coming back to the generation of output, right? We've touched upon the issues of it having misinformation and like just spitting out wrong, false information out there. If we were to use generative AI content, again, using generative AI within products and building generative AI products, that's one of the big things I'm thinking if newsrooms are thinking about having user-facing products that use generative AI, like chatbots that they could chat with their articles and stuff like that. Hallucinations are still a huge issue with large language models. There is no solution to it yet. You can minimize it, but you can never say hundred percent that it's not going to hallucinate if somebody asks you a question. What are the risks now over there, if it's the generation of output for a newsroom that's keeping a tool like this out there, what are the risks that they need to be concerned about?
4: they're all arrows would point to them being responsible for what the ai tool puts out it's going to depend but that would be the safest shortest version is expect to be responsible for what the ai produces a because it's a tool and like we said at the beginning a generally the user of the tool is held responsible for how the tool is used i think another thing to think about is if the news organization if the journalist is the mediator between the tools output and outputting the information it put out if that makes sense like That's very clearly they're gonna be, they should be based on everything we know from history. Again, we don't have updated, I don't even think the Supreme Court has uttered the words artificial intelligence yet. I would need to do a search to double check. I don't think those words show up anywhere. But based on what we know, the news organization would be liable for what is produced. So that includes liability for defamation because of if it makes mistakes, right? And that's the most obvious version. Um, There could be some privacy concerns that, that arise as well. I thought about like false light which if the ai produces an image that creates an impression based on text or you know other things that are around it that creates an impression that how would you define it you know offensive to the ordinary person
3: yeah places somebody in a false or misleading light that would be highly offensive to a reasonable
4: person so like for instance if they ask an image generator to generate an image for like a major, like a big report, and they didn't realize it, but in the image, there's someone who looks pretty identifiable, and these stories about fentanyl abusers, or you know something that's got a negative context to it—bribery, fraud, whatever—and it makes it look like somebody. The image created looks like a real person, and you could say that they held them in false light, which you know is a part of a private, generally considered part of privacy law. So anything that AI produces should get a really. I think my editors used to call it a hairy eyeball. I don't know if that's people still call that. I don't know. But like a really careful look at what they produce. I mean, it's a different kind of than the traditional editing. Again, because the AI makes different, I feel like it makes different types of mistakes than you would expect. That's a very limited list. So
2: what would your advice be for newsrooms and journalists when they are looking at incorporating this tool into their workflows? How could they be kind of minimizing any legal risks and potential harms across the way?
4: They should follow the values that the organization has decided that they follow. So who is, what what organization, what are your organization's values? Who are you as a news organization? And then align your use of AI with that. Because within the values and the ethics of your organization, if you're the organization that really cares about accuracy and you really care about transparency, you should create systems and processes for using AI that reflect accuracy and transparency, right? So you should be doing things that traditional journalists would do, which is ensuring if you're going to ensure what your reporters publish is accurate, make sure what the AI publishes is accurate. And if if there are problems about the AI being accurate, adjust the use of it, reduce the use of it. The question is like, if they create a tool, if a news organization is using a tool that it's not so much that the reporter is using it to get information, but that audience members can use the AI tool to ask questions of it. So like the, I think Bloomberg is pretty far along with their Bloomberg GPT, where you could... Search all the things that Bloomberg knows, all the the organization knows. If it's starting to basically create stories, that's a different type of question too. How news organizations you think about because that goes there's no editor there, right? The, the audience member types it in. It generates the report. The report is taken as if it's a news report from Bloomberg or any news organization. They have to think about what kind of liability they're creating for themselves there. Is it sufficient to put in a disclaimer that our thing does, makes mistakes?
3: Oh gosh, at a minimum, you need a disclaimer. What should that disclaimer look
2: like? Should, is, is it just that generative AI is being used or are you adding more information that we are not liable for any information that this might produce? Should we be having more details like that?
3: It's a good question. I think if you've paid attention at all to the evolution of disclaimers on Chat GPT, I think it gives us a nice tip here. So Disclaimers are never going to... I shouldn't say never. That's a long time. Disclaimers aren't always going to absolve liability, right? But what they do is they make a more informed user at minimum, right? So I would definitely let them know. I would give them as much information as you can that they're this is using generative AI, that it may produce information that is wrong or incorrect, that we've done the best we could to stop it from doing that, but that it's not perfect, right? That you can't rely on this information, I sort of think about the the biggest risk to me is when you have the public interacting with the bot giving information. So that makes me most nervous for newsrooms to do. It makes me much less nervous for newsrooms to rely on it to help break writer's block, get something going that then they can take on and finish and make their own or to get started on something. That doesn't make me so nervous because there are, like Jared said, there are some checkpoints in place. You're going to have a journalist who is owning that story. You're going to have editors in place who know how to give feedback and and make improvements. But when you have an end user, you have a consumer who is going onto the website and asking for information, and then the AI model is generating a story, presumably to give factual information to the user. The risk of hallucinations is, is significant enough for me to make me really nervous about a tool like that. It's like having an employee who is, so forget about the technology for a second. Imagine having an employee who's chatting with the public answering questions. The better trained that employee is, the better those answers are going to be. I guess the less training they have, the more risk you have of answers giving rise to all sorts of liability, like Jared was mentioning before. And not all models are the same, but even the best model, I don't think is totally safe. I think there's there are risks for sure associated with them.
4: So be careful when you take the journalist completely out of the picture. That's basically, it seems like what we're saying is the liability is greatest when the journalist and the journalistic processes and practices that most news organizations follow are taken out of the picture because the audience engages directly with the AI tool and not, it's not mediated by a journalist doing a fact-checking.
3: And providing contextualization, which is so critical to accuracy and understanding, it's not something I feel comfortable with at this point. That I don't, I don't like the idea of a news organization using it for that purpose. For other purposes, answering, you know for customer service inquiries, maybe. But for generating information, I'm really nervous about that right now.
4: And that makes me think of a really good point that a friend of mine, who is a First Amendment lawyer, pointed out to me last yeah. summer. News organizations, his advice about AI was news organizations should check to make sure that their media insurance covers AI-created content. Because he was concerned that if it's not in the policy, that if they do have a lawsuit that arises from the use of AI, the insurance could just be like, well, this is not in the policy. We don't cover AI. Therefore, you're on your own on this. And so that's kind of a, it's not directly related to your question, but I definitely thought it'd be worth mentioning that a simple thing that every news organization could do is to check in to what their their media insurance policy does regarding AI.
3: Can you imagine a policy that exists that covers AI?
4: Right, it's very likely they don't, right? And so it's, but they probably will be in the future, but yeah, it's, it's definitely worth checking in to.
3: I feel like that's a guaranteed exclusion. Acts of God, artificial intelligence, <laughs> and produce material. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So removing the journalist out of the loop, are any without having a system where no human in the loop is like there's no human in the loop is detrimental I see in terms of the risks that could be there
4: because your organization's name is still on what is produced I mean you could bring up the Sports Illustrated issue but I mean I don't know if that's exactly the same but I mean Sports Illustrated's reputation as a new organization not it wasn't doing great it's doing less great now because as far as we understand, and we haven't gotten completely clear answers, they were creating content and and reporters at, using J- AI and not telling their audiences at all. That's probably not a best practices move there.
2: As a reader, and just as anybody, like it just feels wrong, I would say ethically, like you're not even telling you're making up people and not telling that it's an AI avatar, you're okay with an AI avatar or something like that, but not even telling that it is one. I mean putting them especially as journalists where we have to put trust in the news. And that just I agree. But another thing is when I'm thinking about generative AI and we're talking about AI in general I think this is different from natural language generation than like what the AP has been doing with their financial reports that they've been automating since like over a decade now in terms of because of their, it's a rules-based system and it still generates language, but unlike the large language models, it's not predicting the next word. It's all like an if else statement, basically, if this is what it is, then this is how the sentence should look like. So in those kinds of ways, I just want to make that distinction then, Anina, is in that kind of way, then you,
3: the, those liabilities are very
2: minimal in a way.
3: Definitely. So Nikita, this is your expertise. So correct me if I'm using these terms wrong, right? But I think it's the difference between a closed system and an open system. When When you have a closed system and you have pretty strict constraints on what is going to be produced, you are minimizing your risk of liability. And the Washington Post and the Associated Press have been doing this for years really successfully with exactly the types of stories, you know, whether they're financial reports or sports game updates, stuff like that. You're really limiting your risk with those what I am calling closed systems, whereas, you know, the other side these open systems, there's no limit to what text they might generate or images, right, depending on what it is it might generate, which which is where the liability I think really increases.
2: And coming
3: back actually then to
2: the whole large language and image generation models, how is the, the regulatory landscape
3: evolving right now? Where are you seeing it would be heading towards? I hope there's nothing that happens, to be honest with you. In terms of the conversation that we're having right now, I get really nervous when we have a new technology and lawmakers want to scramble and put something in place. Because in my mind, that's not the right approach. We Generally, our legal frameworks are pretty malleable to They adjust to new technology they can adapt to new technology pretty well and this may be a major shift and certainly an extraordinary technological development, but we've had other technological developments in the past the internet right is an example of one that many of our laws flexed to be able to to cover defamation is a great example. Defamation that was happening in print, the same laws apply to defamation that happens online. And the same laws can probably be used to defamation when it's generated by an algorithm. So I worry about efforts to legislate too quickly until we really know where the gaps are. And I don't think in the areas that we're talking about, I Maybe there are some gaps with copyright. I don't think that when we're talking about other speech harms like defamation, like some of these privacy concerns, false light, or even sharing private information, if it shared private information that wasn't supposed to be made public. I think a lot of those, we have a legal framework set up. So I'm wary of regulators trying to write specific laws for AI. Although I imagine there are some other gaps maybe with privacy that might need to be addressed. I don't know, Jared, have you already thought about those those gaps?
4: Well, I would just add that, so in the U.S., I mean, we're kind of a legislative dead zone anyway, right? Like just nothing's, thing. we're not thinking of new ideas right now. We're struggling, struggling with just getting lawmakers to walk from one hallway to the other right now is kind of a big step for us. So luckily for Nina and anybody else who doesn't want to see any legislation, there doesn't look like there's going to be any but Europe is very proactive and the EU has been very proactive and they are very late in the stages of finishing up the Artificial Intelligence Act. So they're, they are being more aggressive and proactive, very harms focused, creating expectations that any AI that is, you know, in interacting with the public doesn't create harm. Their laws is very long and complicated, but that's an example of something that's moving forward. You might see some things pop up on the state level here and there. I wouldn't be surprised if California started experimenting because they're they're kind of the Europe of the U.S. as far as being proactive and trying, trying new things that no one else has tried so far. So if I was going to look for, if someone asked me which state I would look for to see if there's any AI related legislation, this coming legislative term, I would look to California first. But yeah, the landscape is very not moving right now.
3: Actually, Jared, what you said just reminded me. I mean, we tend to think of generative AI almost as being separate from deep fakes because deep fakes, although it uses, and there there is legislation in California and Texas and elsewhere directly addressing deep fakes, which I'm also a little suspicious of that legislation, but... could you give us a brief
2: overview of what that legislation looks like?
3: Yeah. So it's a little bit different everywhere. So Jared, you should talk about Texas. I mean, you That's your bread and butter.
4: Oh, well, I mean, the Texas deepfakes law is very narrow, and I don't know that I've seen any court cases come from it. It's purely for political deepfakes, so it's only political speech, and it's only during a period before an election. I can't remember what the period is. Is it a month or 60 days? But something like a very specific period before an election, a deepfake that is misleading, which inherently they generally are and it's politically related, there can be legal action taken against the person who posted it. That's Texas's law. It's it's maybe a few years old now, but I don't have seen anything big come from it now.
2: With generative AI, that's also possible. Like with image generation, though, as you said, they are not producing, when you say a particular person's name, they're not producing those images, but you can get models to run that are not kind of like been... Having these restrictions, and they could produce any public figures, put them in kind of unpleasant situations, and have that and propagating that as misinformation. And so, like, what does that kind of like legal landscape look like over there?
3: I think it's the same whether it's created by a person or whether it's created by an algorithm. I'll give you an example. A student showed me yesterday an ad that she saw on TikTok. And the ad was for essentially a dupe of Kim Kardashian's Skims underwear products. And in the ad, it played with what I'm assuming was, the student and I are assuming was a deep fake of Kim Kardashian's voice saying, oh, my products are so cheap. They only cost $2 to produce and I sell them for $65. My customers are so stupid, right? Essentially saying that, which my student and I kind of agreed that would be very unlike Kim to get become recorded saying that so we started talking about that and she said well what's the liability and i said well it's the same whether someone mimicked the voice or they used a computer to create the voice right the harm is the same so i think sometimes we get too focused on the technology that's used that results in this harm rather than looking at how we address that harm. So if she's put in a false light, if, she, if her company is, is defamed by this, we have legal systems in place to address that. It isn't that significant that it was created by a computer rather than a person mimicking the voice, right? Maybe it goes to the level of fault or maybe it goes to damages or something, but, but in assessing the liability, I'm not quite sure that it's that significant.
4: So the good news is for newsrooms is for news organizations is use the rules that you've been using. I mean, basically what we're it seems like one of the themes is that the precedents and the rules that have led news organizations to create the processes and practices they've created to avoid liability continue to apply to this new technology, this new tool. Generally, that's what it seems like so far.
2: And so what I'm really understanding is use generative AI, chat GPT, all of these as tools, just as you do any other tool, like a style check tool or Grammarly. But again, always having that human in the loop and it's not automatically going and publishing anything out there because that's when the library risk directly falls upon the newsroom. And also for, again, I'm thinking newsroom products that would be using generative AI, if you're going to have them directly user facing, there's again a huge liability risk because of the risk of hallucinations, if you're including that in your products. And One thing I also want to touch briefly upon is that you're talking about the privacy issues. It seems like there are precedents already set for some of the big things like defamation and all of these other concerns that we were having. With privacy, one of the big things is we are not knowing how these large language models are using the data that we're inputting into them. We don't know how they're going to be training. Are they training upon them if I'm giving all of this information to these models and then they are going and using it to train on them further. Would that information come out at another point to somebody else? Right now, there have just been like some researchers have been hacking ChatGPT, GPT and some of the data has been leaking on what ChatGPT GPT has been trained could we see a future in, I don't know, 10 years down the line or even quicker, maybe suddenly, where somebody has accidentally inputted their like social security number or done something like that, you know, or put in their address, they put in their resume and their address and phone number was all over there and GPT gave them suggestions on their resume, which was a very common task that people are using GPT for now. Does that then now spit out into somebody else's output over there? what Are there like big legal concerns over there as well?
4: There are so many things uh, from your question that came to my mind. So I'm going to try to do two of them, though, just two. One is that it reminded me that I wanted to make sure to point out that when news organizations use um, tools like ChatGPT or even Otter, the the trans- transcription service, you should read the terms of service because you are when you input content into there. So if you've got confidential sources and you put them into Otter, it's possible that that information will be saved. And I, it, we don't know yet if that could come back around But when I was trying to read some of the terms of service for ChatGPT and Otter, just as two examples that I thought would be helpful for news organizations, both of them are saving content that is put into prompts or put into their services. And so news organizations need to think about how much content of their original reporting or original sources that they want to put into ChatGPT, for instance, because that becomes whatever. If you dump in, you know, an interview with a confidential source and it's like it's top file, it's like this is my source and, you know, all this stuff that creates a record that ChatGPT now has. We don't know yet if that could matter, which kind of gets to your question, but it could. The second one is I think generally people, forget AI, just generally people don't seem to realize how much of our private data is already out there. And that's, I wanna like, it's very possible that these tools already have, I mean, this information's out there. Like I mean, there are files about every one of us that we cannot see that have been gathered, bought and sold and traded, that it's possible a jat GPT or an AI product could be trained on. So we have less privacy than we think already. So it's not like having AI. AI might just purely provide a forum through which people could get it, but it's already, already out there pretty much.
3: I was just gonna say something similar, right? I think there are all of these calls for algorithmic transparency and accountability because of what we've learned over the past five, 10 years about how these companies, these internet companies are using our data, right? What a commodity this data has really become. And I think because of that, we're very aware and alert to the fact that we're giving up some data and that data exists somewhere that they could be using and benefiting from. And I think Nikita, when we were talking a few minutes ago about what legislation needs to happen. I think this is an area where we're lagging here. There is no federal data privacy law here. Many U.S. states have passed some data privacy laws. California leading the way here. The EU is ahead of us as as usual on that front. But we don't have anything, there's no federal framework. And I think this is an area where we have bipartisan support and there's been a lot of traction, but still nothing happening yet. This is an area that could really benefit from that if the legislation is meaningful and and i don't i don't know what it looks like at this point what these legislators have have in mind but the transparency and the accountability of actors in this space i think is really important not just because it's generative ai but because there's so much data moving back and forth i think it fits what we are already concerned about from meta and from other, google and from or, other organizations that trade in this data So I
2: see data privacy seems to be that area where maybe we are lagging in any legal, any laws or any regulatory issues. The regulatory landscape is basically empty over there, it seems like, especially for These AI models and how they would be operating. And also, I was uh, just reading a report that recently came out from Salesforce, which said that, especially in the media and entertainment industry, a survey that they had done nearly 53% of them have used unapproved generative AI tools at work, banned generative AI tools. And that's again a really high number. But in the survey that was saying that journalists are using or people, media, people in the industry, in the media and entertainment industry are still using these tools, even if it may not be approved. So I want to start wrapping things up in terms of like, what would your best practices then be for people who are on more of an individual level using these tools at work? What are your tips for them? Jared?
4: I think one of the questions uh, we have to be asking ourselves too, which is probably not a wrapping up question, but should a newsroom have a AI use policy? Should a news organization create a policy? Some have, some haven't. I think over time, I would like, I hope to see some best practices that are developed, identified, and shared. And one of the most dangerous things about AI for news organizations right now is we don't have that. So there's going to be, until the best practices are identified, there's going to be lots of experimenting, which there should be. But I guess the advice would be things that they should be thinking about is that what are your organization's? What is your organization's, news organization's identity? Like, who are you? Your use of AI should be based on who you are as a news organization. Things to be thinking about are accuracy, because that should be something they're thinking about anyway. But accuracy, AI doesn't care about accuracy like journalists care about accuracy. So it's, it's the same concern we already have, but it's, it's under a different type of test. I think transparency is a really big question. News organizations, would be thinking about how they're going to tell their audiences that they're using AI and in what way, and like how the best practice for prominence and placement of that information. There should be a lot of attention to illustrations like we've been talking about. If they're using AI image creation, it's not some magic tool that's not gonna have no, it will have problems too, that they should be editing these illustrations and images that are created by AI because they create all kinds of questions. They should be thinking carefully about the information they're feeding into AI tools because that is being documented and saved by a third party, basically, which could turn around and sell it to other third parties. These are all really timeless, mostly timeless journalistic things. They're just being imported or applied to a new technology. So don't treat AI like it's just magic black box that is a solution to everything. It's a really revolutionary tool that we're still figuring out. But remember what your organization's values are and try to to apply those to AI. Don't treat it like this is just an a whole new world. It's a tool. Think about how you're going to use the tool.
2: When you're talking about AI policy, one thing that actually popped in my head was then should generative AI tools be banned? What are kind of the pros and cons of banning these AI tools that way? What's your thought on that?
4: It would seem counterproductive to ban them. I mean, it, it'd be missing out on a, a revolutionary tool that other information providers will be using, right? So if your news organization says, "I'm just, we're just not going to use AI at all, Ever. Well, you're probably going to miss out on reaching audiences that other organizations are going to be reaching. So I think it's a far better approach. It's the same thing with academia, right? We're struggling with what to do with AI too, because students can create entire works without doing any work, right? And so do you ban all AI? And it's just like, well, first of all, how do you police that? But also, are you missing out on using the tools that you need to reach your audience?
3: What's your take on it, Nina? One thing I really want to add is that I'd be really careful about violating your employer's policy when it comes to something like this. If the employer has a policy that's really clear that you need to either not use the technology for your work or that you need to disclose when when you do it. If we're talking about newsrooms, really even broader, but especially in newsrooms, I'd be really careful about violating that because I think... If you end up producing something, I'll just give one example. If you end up creating something where there's defamation liability, what your role has been in that is violating your own standard or code of conduct at the office, which I think could be really problematic. So I would be really cautious. If the employer has a policy in place, I would follow that policy. Use it in your own time. Use it at home. Play with it. Have fun. But stick with what you're supposed to do in that workplace setting.
4: That makes 100% legal sense. But I also like that journalists hate to follow rules. And I remember like when I was like, you know, a reporter in the the newsroom was like, you can't go cover that tornado because it has to be clear first. And we'd be like, we want to go do our job. We don't want to be stuck by an insurance company saying, so Nina's advice is absolutely true. But I I also think that, I guess the thing I would add that is if a newsroom has a policy and an employee doesn't follow it, my understanding is that the newsroom can say we're not liable here because... This person did the wrong thing. The organization did not. Is that fair, Nina? Like-
3: I don't think that's going to hold up. I think the organization is still going to be liable. I think that there may be individual li- liability in addition. And I think that individual will be jobless, you know, at best. But no, I, I don't think so. I think, look, to the point that you made, know which rules to break. I'm not sure this is one of them.
2: Yeah. True. And I think, yeah, 53% was quite a high number. This is the first time I'm seeing a survey report on how many people are using these tools when they are banned. So that was a bit of a shocking number for me. But as you're saying, I think it, the, the liability is quite high, and especially how we are using these tools is so important. And talking about all of that, I want to kind of end things up with hiring how AI has had an impact on your own personal life. Nina, how have you been using
3: AI? Have you been using Chat, GPT and e fun cases. Yeah. I mean, I've played around with it a lot. I've been playing around with it for, I guess, a year now. And I've really tried very hard to have it help me do my work to generate some exam questions and assignments. And it has just failed me every time. (laughs) So I've had to do a lot of work on my own there where I thought it might plug in. I actually, I have, this is not a self-promotion, but I, I recently launched like a, an apparel company selling t-shirts and hats related to hockey and lacrosse. And I don't know SEO. I don't know online marketing. And so I actually asked ChatGPT to ask me questions about my business, learn about my business, and then suggest... Like a SEO marketing plan for me, and I've been taking its advice. So I, maybe it's because I don't know enough to know whether it's good advice or not. But <laughs> I've been using it in the SEO descriptions and keywords, and I think so far it's been it's been really valuable for me. So.
2: I like that example because I think it shows in teaching, you're an expert at that. And so your level of knowledge is way higher than what ChatGPT is probably giving you. But you've started your own business and an online business and something you're doing and you don't know, you're not an expert yet on it since you're doing it for the first time. So ChatGPT's knowledge is higher than what you might have. So it's kind of guiding you along the way. And soon you might have better knowledge and <laughs> not be using ChatGPT anymore for those purposes maybe. <laughs> Yeah, that makes
3: perfect sense. I like the way you framed that.
2: Yeah, and Jared, how about you? You, You've been playing around since we spoke last. You've been sending me quite a few images from time to
3: time on how you've been experimenting with it in your class. Yeah, he's looking for Travis Kelsey and other football players.
4: I'm just experimenting with the technology, right? I think for my students, I need to be using what they're using, and I need to be bringing. I'm trying to bring it into the classroom to connect with the questions that they have. So.
2: So what's the AI policy in your classroom? Like, are they allowed to chat, play around with it?
4: Oh, yeah, I definitely don't. As far as doing assignments, I don't have anything this semester that I'm really concerned about. But I'm not one of the professors as a technology policy. I don't know, Nina, if you do that or not. I remember when I was a TA, the professor I was TA for used to make me tell students to get off their computers all the time. I think they should be using their computers in class. And maybe they'll even look something up that I'm talking about instead of shop. But I mean, yeah, I've been trying, like I sent you, I think I sent you the Drake song that Chachi created for me this week. So I was teaching my first class period about copyright on Tuesday and I asked it to write a Drake themed song about copyright because he's had a case about uh, his voice being used without his permission. And it really nailed, it did a really nice job hitting a lot of the fundamental ideas of copyright in a Drake song. And so Yeah, I used it in class to try to get my students to pay attention, to get them to care. I did not perform the song. I am not paid enough for that. But (laughs) the evaluations weren't done yet. So anyway, yeah, it's useful. I'll ask it definitions and I'll throw the definitions up on the slide to be like, hey, this is the definition it gave me of fair use. Does this look accurate based on what we talked about in class last class period? It's just like a review tool. A friend of mine has asked students in an assignment to ask about a specific case and then evaluate whether or not ChatGPT got it right about the case, which is a great way to test learning, to have them kind of critically evaluate an AI output, which is just not just good for class, but good for them to teach them to critically think about what AI output. So that was a really good idea.
2: Fun. I love all of these fun use cases of student. I wish I could be there in your class and <laughs> hear that Drake copyright. You can probably have an AI generated voice over it, so you have like a Drake Drake song.
4: I could do that, maybe.
2: And some AI generated music and beats for along with it. <laughs> so.
4: You wouldn't have next semester.
2: Yeah. Well, Nina, Jared, this has been uh, very enlightening for me. I feel like I have answers to questions that I've been having for such a long time since I've been playing around with this. These copyright concerns have been a big, a big issue, and so being able to break down exactly what these concerns look like, what's possible, and what the legal landscape is right now has been so helpful. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me. And and this conversation.
4: Thank you. this was really fun.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. That was Nina Brown. Assistant Professor at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University, and Jared Schroeder, Associate Professor of Media Law at the University of Missouri School of Journalism. Stay updated with our newsletter by signing up at newsroomrobots.com. This episode is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Bob Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots.